On this World Communion Sunday, when we are celebrating at the Lord's table along with hundreds of millions of brothers and sisters around the world, think of that. And on this Sunday, when we continue in our journey through the Lord's Prayer, and I hope it's seeking into a deep place in your soul in the way that we are working with it today. I am going to, as I promised, offer you the shortest sermon I've ever preached on the shortest text I've ever used. The text comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, which is the opening line of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, You won't need to open your Bible. I have this text memorized, and I'll bet you do too. So hear the word of the Lord for the morning. Our. This is the word of the Lord. Our text for the morning is our, and I'm not being flippant about this. I talked last week of how often we kind of glaze over when we come to the Lord's Prayer. It becomes not much more than religious white noise. We really don't think about what it is we're praying. And as I was reflecting on this Sunday in particular, I realized, especially that first word, we just jump right off of that word, paying no attention to it. But I decided this week, on this World Communion Sunday, I'm going to pay attention to the word hour. As a matter of fact, I want to take a look at a slide here, and I want you to look at the number of times that the first, some form of the first person plural appears in this slide. Any, there we go. Our Father. So I want you to count, not out loud. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not, deliver us. How many times do you see it? It's nine times. Nine times some form of first-person plural appears in this prayer that the Lord Jesus gave to us. What is interesting is it's a prayer, and yet first-person plural, some reference to us or we or our, appears more frequently than a, a reference to the divinity, to God. And the other thing that you'll notice as you look at that is that there's not a single place in which the first-person singular appears. No I, no me, no my. The whole prayer is is about us. It's not about me. And this wouldn't have felt odd to the disciples. They were a part of community. When you look at the Old Testament, you realize that God called not individuals. He called an entire nation of people to be his family, his children, his covenant community. And Paul reinforces that when he's speaking to the Corinthians. He's talking about this this organization called the Church of Jesus, and he describes it as a human body. Do you remember that conversation? He uses the metaphor of the body, and he said, and each of you is an individual body part. You need each other. So don't be so silly as to say that I have no need of you. The, 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 The tongue never says to the ear, I have no need of you. The nose doesn't say to the big toe, I have no need of you. We all need each other. Can you imagine what it would be like, he asked, if it was just a nose or just an ear or just an eye? It would be a monstrosity, wouldn't it? And so it is with the body of Christ. But we Americans don't get this. We American believers are fiercely independent. We are proud of the fact that we, when we don't have to draw on help from other people, 
We view our faith predominantly as private, which is why most Christians never talk about their faith outside of the church walls. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, then, we almost all of us unconsciously translate it into the first person singular. We may be saying the words, but we are really praying, My Father, give me my bread, forgive my debts, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil. But that is not what Jesus taught. Nine times he says, we, us, our, it's like a drumbeat that he's driving us on. And so what is it he is saying? He's saying you belong to each other. He's saying we need each other. You were not designed to walk alone. And any, any effort, any idea that you can be my disciple by yourself is monstrous. I asked in my blog yesterday what the Seahawks can teach us about the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's this, this 12th man idea. On any given game day, folks from a variety of backgrounds are going to show up and they're going to be wearing jerseys and and they will come together around this this common love that they have. And, And every time a touchdown is scored, even though... They're standing next to people they have never seen and probably never will see again. They have no clue who they are. Suddenly they're high-fiving each other and cheering each other and hugging each other. That's what the 12th man means. It is a sense of unity and connectedness. No matter who you are, when you're in that jersey, you belong to the family. Isn't that what's supposed to be happening here? I want you to do something that may be the most uncomfortable thing that you'll be asked to do all week. I want you to turn around and find someone who's not your spouse, and I would like you to look them in the eye for four seconds without blinking. I'm serious. Do it. Find someone and look them in the eye. You know, it just cracks me up how this makes us giggle. We, we are so used to sitting next to each other, looking eyes straight ahead and nodding and glancing, but then averting our gaze, that to actually pause and stare into the eyes of someone who is, in fact, in Christ, my brother, my sister, a member of my family, just seems uncomfortable to us. And yet because of our common love for Christ, we from diverse backgrounds are brought together and we worship together and we serve together and we pray together and we eat bread and drink cup together today because we who belong, bear the name of Jesus, we belong together. And not just we, even more oddly, this means that we also belong to the Thai who will be celebrating communion under a thatched hut in Leitangku today. And we also belong to the Haitian sister who will be receiving a fragment of bread today in a crumbled, dilapidated church. She is our sister. She, he is our brother. These are not those poor, hapless souls who need our help far away and so we'll send them some money. They are us. They, we are they. We are together in the body of Christ. They are our brothers and sisters and we are family. These are our our. So what do we do with this? 
We will nod our heads up and down as you always dutifully do when I preach. You nod. You will agree. And for that, I thank you. You'll say, yes, we are family, Pastor. But if all we ever do is gather here on a Sunday morning, if all we ever do is come for a sermon and for some music, we will never experience what it means to really live as if we need each other. Now, we have a solution to this. Do you know what the magic sauce is, the secret sauce is here at Chapel Hill for community? Yes, I heard it. Life groups. Say life groups. Life groups. I don't know if I've said it this clearly, but I want you to hear me when I say this. We believe that life groups are the single most important disciple-making tool in our belt. It is the single most important tool that we have in helping our people, you, understand what it means to really live together in community. More important even than a Sunday morning, more important even than a sermon, life groups is what we believe is most important. And if you're not in a life group, if you're not in a small community of believers, you are depriving yourself of the experience that Jesus thought was essential. Because the primary thing he devoted himself to was pouring himself into the, into the lives of one small group, 12 men. It is in life groups that we study the Bible, in life groups that we pray, in life groups that we grapple, in life groups that we mourn, in life groups that we celebrate. It is in life groups that we are held accountable for the behavior that our lips say we believe, but our actions do not. If you're not in a life group, you are not experiencing real family. I invite you to take the challenge. Go to the Connect page on our website. Look at 51 life groups. Surely there's one in there that might meet your needs. Find a a leader and and take the courage to send them a note and say, I am interested. And life group leaders, I challenge you, rather than to be content with that wonderful little group that you have, to have your head on a swivel and be looking around and say, who is the other person that I am called by God to draw into my community of faith? It will change your spiritual life. I love my life group. I would not want to live my life as your pastor without a group of men that pour into me. In fact, this last Friday, we met together as we always do every morning, Friday morning. And we were talking about the hour of our Lord's Prayer. And one of the members sent an email to the rest of us afterwards. By the way, that's how we keep the connection going. We send emails throughout the week about what we are reflecting on what we learn so that we stay connected. And here's what he said. The epiphany for me this week was realizing that not only am I responsible for my brothers, but I'm also responsible to my brothers. I wonder if you think about church in that way, if you think about this community in that way, that you are responsible for the one that you just looked into their eyes for five seconds. You're responsible for them. You're also responsible to them, just like family which is precisely what we are because Jesus taught us to pray our Father.